Hello and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian literature for the inebriated. I'm Matt Karasimovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, terrorized by my dog who does not understand daylight savings time and thinks that I forgot to feed him. <laughs> and I'm Cameron Lalana. And this week, I am taking a huge step forward technologically right into the mid-20th century mm. because I have just acquired a CRT uh, TV. My mom was going to give it away, and I said, I was there, and I was going to help her carry it down, and I said, hey, why don't I take it? I need a VHS player. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the first time that sentence has been said in the last, I'm going to say, 25 years. Yeah, she um, must have thought she went back in time. <laughs> yeah, and so now I have it on on the left side of my room. I've set it up the CRT and a stand to my bed, but that's also the side of the room where I have my radio. So that's my little like 19, you know, 42 part. Well, they didn't have CRTs in 1942, but you get my point. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's mm-hmm. nothing, nothing newer than like 19, uh, 1980 in that corner of the room now. Mm-hmm. That's good. So yeah, that's good. Happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. This is a podcast where me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. This week, we are finally getting around to reading The Shot by Alexander Pushkin, a short story that we've tried to read no less than three times on this podcast, and for whatever reason, it's always gotten bumped. It's it's just unlucky. It's just unlucky. But before we get into talking about this duel, uh, and, and first, actually, when are we going to do our duel, Matt? We've been talking about this since Eugene Onegin, and yes, I know... Uh, Dr. Bowers was against it for, I guess, probably moral reasons. Our duel is now possible, thank you, to whoever made the <laughs> Oculus Rift that uh, explodes if you die in a game. That's right. So That's right. we'll be able to suit up from the comfort of our own home and, <laughs> and then blast. get into Pavlov mm-hmm. and then just have mm-hmm. the world's most uh, unnerving uh, online match. Yeah. No, it really wouldn't be good for me. I'm really not good at video games. <laughs> Despite how many hours I've played, I'm not good at any of them. <laughs> that's that's fair. Well, you know, um, if it helps, Pavlov, despite that I was, you know, as a child, I was pretty heavily exposed to firearms. Pavlov makes me think I actually don't have any experience with firearms whatsoever that's and good. how hard it is to use them okay. in that game. <laughs> All right, maybe that seems fair then. Um, yeah, but... Until then, I mean, I've, as I've always said, we could just get black powder pistols and, and go right at it. We can have them shipped right to our door, but um, uh, everyone keeps telling me no, so... It's the old black powder pistol loophole everyone's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking of loopholes, let's talk about the shot. But I gotta ask first, what are you drinking this fine evening? This fine evening, I am. I don't have a craft beer this time. However, I do have a mezcal. So this is, I think I've had this on the podcast before. This is Crema de Mezcal from Del Magüey, uh, which is a mezcal with agave syrup. And uh, the reason why I'm uh, spending so much time on it is because this is, I think, first of all, incredible mezcal. Secondarily, I think some of the funniest little commentary on the side. It has on, on the label next to the name, it has para todo mal, mezcal, y para todo bien, también, which means for everything bad, mezcal, and for everything good as well. That's good. It's, uh, it's good. I think it's a good ethos. That's a good slogan. And then below that, it says, for women only, dot, 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 and dot, 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 a few strong men. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm a sucker for nonsensical, uh, well, that's not all nonsensical, but funny stuff on labels, so. Yeah, there you are. One of the few, one of the brave. A mezcal drinker. I know you're still on your grind, so what are, what are you bringing? Yeah, I'm on my abstaining Ahmatova grind these days <laughs> still. Uh, I am drinking from Athletic Brewing Company. It's called Free Wave. It is a non-alcoholic hazy IPA 
Gotta say, still pretty good. Okay, pretty good. Nice. And 2% of all of their sales go back to restoring local trails, which sounds like an advertisement, but I just think it's cool. That is very cool. So anyways. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, let's talk about the shot. So uh, the shot by, you know, of course, Pushkin, our friend, our good, dear, personal friend, mm -hmm. Alexander Pushkin. Um, this is one of one of five short stories that was originally published in um, full title, The Tales of the Late Ivan Petrovich Belkin, also known as, you know, Belkin's Tales. And this uh, detailing um, the events at a small military outpost and uh, the larger consequences of a duel. Man, we love talking about duels with in relation to Pushkin, don't we? Yes, or, absolutely. I guess actually Pushkin, Pushkin is the one writing all of this. Um, is there anything you want to cover before we got into the summary itself, Matt? Uh, not on dueling specifically. I think it's kind of best to talk about it as we go through. I don't want to give a whole lecture on dueling etiquette. I would like you to give a whole lecture on dueling I etiquette. I mean, I will when we get into it, but... Uh, All right. Uh, up front, I'll I'll just preface on the importance of the duel as a ritual in the 19th century, and we'll see how that unfolds as we go through it. Sounds like a plan. So we we join our our narrator in the shot as uh, he begins to describe to us the town that he's in. So uh, he's part of a military unit, and they're stationed in the town of Endash, as is the habit in you know older imperial Russian literature. You'll see a lot of names censored. That's before uh, Russian came up with the ability to name cities. <laughs> yeah, it was really hard. You could actually only name they could only name thirty two cities at a time before they started repeating things. Yeah, it was a very um, challenging time. I'm surprised there's not more literature written on that. <laughs> um, so we're joining a small uh, military unit, and this town is so small that it, this is how it's described. In Endash, there was not one open house, not a single marriageable girl. We used to meet in each other's rooms, where except our uniforms, we never saw anything. So it sounds like college. <laughs> Well, I mean, actually, well, never mind. I was going to go into demographics of where I went to college, but that's off the topic. Uh, so uh, these guys, this military unit, they mostly stayed in themselves, except for one dude, one civilian who's um, 35 years of age. Uh, so therefore, of course, because these are all young soldiers, they looked upon him as a, quote, old fellow. And he has a great amount of experience. Uh, he's very taciturn. And everyone, they, they just kind of look up to him, respect him. And he hosts dinner parties, which they come to. Um, and uh, there's not much to say about him that he doesn't, he mostly keeps to himself. Um, and he's a pretty simple guy, but he gives them a lot of champagne. So, you know, naturally they're going to come over. The most important thing to note about him is that his principal amusement was, uh, as the narrator notes, shooting with a pistol. In fact, the walls of his room were riddled with bullets and were as full of holes as a honeycomb. A rich collection of pistols was the only luxury in the humble cottage where he lived. That sounds like the makings of a really mentally stable person. <laughs> yeah, it's just a dude who out in the middle of nowhere who just does nothing but shoot his own walls all day. Yep. I don't see why you wouldn't want to yep. why you wouldn't want to go hang out with him more often. <laughs> <laughs> so this this man the, who the narrator name whom the narrator named Silvio doesn't participate in specifically with their conversations about duels. Although they love to talk about him, he replies whenever they ask him about it that he's been in some duels but that, you know, he doesn't really want to talk about it. And they, they, for the most part, they respect that. And this continues until one day when uh, about 10 of their officers are dining with Silvio, uh, and they're having their usual dinner conversation, and they decide to play a game of a pharaoh, a card game. It's noted that Silvio's custom in playing these card games is to play more or less in silence, um, and then he keeps track himself. If there are any, you know, mistakes in calculations that someone gives or uh, some mistake in playing, he just corrects it in silence. They'll just 
go about their days, let them correct things. Now, one officer happens to make a mistake, and this is a new one who has not played with them previously. And so Silvio uh, corrects the mistake this officer makes when writing down the score, and the officer uh, tries to get him to correct it back, but Silvio, without saying anything, just keeps correcting it again until the officer loses his patience and grabs a candlestick from the table and throws it at Silvio, uh, who just barely avoids you know, being hit by this thing. And everyone in this moment, before they're making fun of this guy, uh, begin to, to think, oh man, this guy's dead. You know, Silvio, he not only is he, uh, seeming a little unstable, he's also, a, you know, a crack shot. Uh, he's, he's, they're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. But a day passes, and then another day passes, and the challenge never comes. And in fact, um, after, um, at, to the attendant that the officer sends, Silvio basically says that he is satisfied with the explanation that the attendant provides and, you know, reconciles. Boo! <laughs> Boo, no blood sport. No reconciliation. <laughs> uh, so this disappoints them all because they kind of looked up on him as someone who was, you know, just would take, would instantly, of course, go into a duel. And it's noted by the narrator, want of courage is the last thing to be pardoned by young men, who usually look upon bravery as the chief of all human devices and the excuse for every possible fault. Which is a good line. Absolute zinger. Absolute zinger. Over time, everyone more or less forgets about it. Silvio gains his former place, with the exception of the narrator, who notes he's a bit of a romantic. He's got, uh, and he's more attached to Silvio than the rest were. And he was the one who, uh, and, and the narrator's the only one who Silvio really deigned to speak to or really drop his sarcastic air. And, and the narrator has the sense that Silvio is some, this hero of some mysterious drama. For the most part, the, things continue on. He kind of distances himself from Silvio until one day Silvio receives a letter. He looks at it and then looks at the rest of them and says, Hey, gentlemen, uh, circumstances demand my immediate departure. I must leave tonight and I will put on one final dinner and I hope you shall all join me. Um, so the officers all go. They have a usual night. Everything is nice. It's, Silvio is in excellent humor and he begins to, uh, after the end of dinner, let them all go. Thanks them all for coming. And then he grabs the dinner and says, look, I need to speak to you. And he pulls him aside and they go and sit in his parlor. And um, in this, in this, without everyone else, it's noted that Silvio seems troubled. In fact, the intense pallor of his face, his sparkling eyes, and the thick smoke uh, issuing from his mouth, um, they have pipes, or they're smoking pipes, uh, note, the narrator notes give him a diabolical appearance. And then Silvio finally gives him an explanation. He, Silvio observes that, uh, you know, I care very little for the opinion of other people, but I like you, and I feel it would be painful for me to leave you with a wrong impression on your mind. And says, look, you may have found it strange that I didn't challenge that drunken idiot to a duel, but it's not that I didn't think we could win that duel, it's just that there is a small chance that he would have killed me, and I have no right to expose myself to death because I received a slap in the face six years ago and my enemy still lives. And the, the narrator says, you must have fought him then. And Silvio says, look, I did I had a duel with him, Here's a souvenir, and he pulls out um, a hat, a red cap with a gold tassel, um, and he put it on, and the narrator sees that there's a bullet that's been passed through. And Silvio begins to tell the narrator of his time serving in a Hussar regiment. Uh, at this time, when he was young, he was himself uh, the most popular officer in his regiment. He was always getting drunk. He was, had many friends, and he was involved in many, many duels where he was either the second or the principal. And so all of his comrades totally looked up to him with all of his commanders who were just not happy with him. Now this lasts until another young fellow comes along um, 
someone, a young man from a wealthy background, and charms everyone and is just like the er, er, Silvio, except that he's wealthier and he's funnier and everyone receives him better and all the attention that used to go to Silvio is now going to this man. And so Silvio turns down this young man's offer of friendship and begins to seek quarrel with him. And this eventually uh, culminates in a ball or some sort of event, Silvio whispering an insult into this man's ear, the guy slaps him, and then they go to have a duel. So they go out, and what the, Silvio realizes is this man approaches him holding a cap, which is filled with black cherries, and he's completely agitated, but the guy is just says, you know, whatever, and, the guy, and Silvio says, shoot me first. The other man says, I don't care, whatever you want. And they draw lots, and the other guy gets to go first, he shoots, and a bullet passes right through Silvio's cap. In turn, Silvio begins to take aim and notes that his life is now in my hands. And he is so ready to shoot and he knows he's going to make this shot. But the other guy doesn't care. He's just standing there. He's picking the ripest cherries out of his pat cap. He's splitting, spitting at the stones right at Silvio. Uh, and it says, come on, you know, are you going to shoot or not? And Silvio says, what is the use, thought I, of depriving him life when he attaches no value whatsoever to it? And so he lowers his pistol and says, look, you don't seem ready for death at present. Uh, you wish to have your breakfast, and I will not hinder you. And basically he says, look, and, and after that, Sylvia resigns and says, look, I will come back for you when, you finally, uh, when you're finally ready to face death. Do you want to know something? Yes. When I was reading this as an undergrad, my professor that taught this story, he brought in cherries so that he could spit them towards us to illustrate <laughs> this scene. <laughs> which that's a, was hilarious that's very funny i mean he didn't really you know you were really in danger of getting spat on of course but it, i think that would have made it better you know it would have it would have um it was funny because it wasn't really a point that needed illustrating whatsoever it was completely comprehensible why uh <laughs> this would elicit this emotion but it was you know i, I appreciate him going the extra mile yeah exactly that's what it's all about being a little extra yeah well actually according to <laughs> Robert Chandler. Uh, allegedly, this is an incident <laughs> taken from Pushkin's own life as well, where uh, he was the one doing the cherry seed spitting. <laughs> so uh, that's scans. Yeah, you know, it's it's a humble brag within his own work of literature. <laughs> I think all of his his own work of literature is a little bit of a, a long term humble brag. That's mostly what literature is, <laughs> I think. All right, you got me there. What do I know? So we rejoin the story in its modern day, and Silvio takes up the letter and says, "Look." You can guess what this letter is about. In Moscow, uh, this young man is now getting married, and I'm going to see if he faces death with as much indifference as he does as he did on the eve of that duel. And he, they say their goodbyes, and he goes to Moscow. For our unnamed narrator, several years passes, and circumstance compels him to settle in a poor village uh, where he just oversees agricultural pursuits there. And it is, it's lonely here. He is... He, he avoids drinking because he's afraid that he's become, going to become a drunkard from, quote, mere chagrin. That is to say, the saddest kind of drunkard, of which I had seen many examples in our district. So he takes his dinner late and he goes to bed early so he can spend as little time in solitude as possible. In fact, he, he does have a couple neighbors, but he just hates being in their presence um, because his conversation consists mostly of hiccups and sighs. So solitude is preferable to that society. Sometime after uh, after being here, uh, it's announced that a Countess B is returning to her uh, her estate out here. Uh, she had visited the estate only once in the first year of her married life, and she remained there no longer than a month. But now she's coming back for um, a, 
for some for some time uh, with with her husband to spend the summer. And so this the arrival of a rich neighbor is really important. I mean, it's just it's something that happens. It's maybe one of the few things that actually is happening. So everyone's talking about it. And of course, her neighbor has to go and introduce himself. So he he goes over once they arrive and waits. And uh, despite his you know his background, he is now in a large house full of luxury, and he begins to feel intimidated. And and uh, he's walking around as he waits for them, looking at all their nice things, the books, the busts, uh, marble mantelpieces. And the, the count and the countess enter, um, and they, they begin to talk. Um, and for the most part, he's pretty, the narrator is really shy until finally um, they see a, a picture um, that there are two bullet holes in. And um, he looks to them, and they're pretty close together. So he tells the, the count, uh, oh, that's a good shot. And he says, uh, the, they, he and the count enter a conversation about shooting and their own skill at it. And part of this conversation, our narrator brags about this one guy he used to know was the best shot he ever knew. Um, you know, he was so good that he could uh, shoot a fly on a wall. And uh, the Count says, really, what was his name? Uh, and he says, well, Silvio, Your Excellency. And the Count says, Silvio, you know Silvio. Of course I do, says the narrator. And I knew him very well. And in fact, um, related to this, this good shot, let me tell you about the strange incident that he once recalled in his life. And that leads into a conversation of, talking about the incident in which Silvio is, you know, now out to revenge himself among this officer from his own regiment. And the Count, to, or the count reveals, look, yes, I, I know that story. That man is me. I'm the man he set out to, to, uh, to kill. Our narrator is shocked um, and, and says, really, I, I could not, I did not know. Could, could you really be the person? And the Countess says, please don't talk about this. Look, let's, uh, let's, let's not speak about that event again. The Count says, no, look, let me tell him. I insulted his friend. It's only right that he should know how Silvio revenged himself. So he tells the story starting five years ago in the first month of their honeymoon in this very village. Um, one evening, the Countess goes out on horseback and uh, he returns, the Count returns alone uh, for other business. And he was told that there was a man waiting for him to study. And he goes in and sees an older guy with a, a long beard who he doesn't recognize, and he approaches him trying to greet him. And the man says, you do not recognize me, Count, said he in a quivering voice. And at this point, he realizes it's Silvio. Um, and Silvio says, yes, exactly, it's me. There's a shot due to me, and I've come to discharge my pistol. Are you ready? And he pulls out a gun. Um, <laughs> and just like, and the guy just very obligingly takes measures that 12 paces, walks away, uh, and they just stand at each other, Silvio holding the gun out of the sky. And then finally Silvio says, look, I came here for a duel. It seems that this is not a duel, me standing here pointing this gun at you, but rather a murder. I'm not, a, I'm not accustomed to aiming it on our men. Let us you know, start again. So they, just like before, load their guns, cast a, a pole lots. Um, and once again, this, the count, always lucky one, pulls the first shot. And he aims the pistol right at the guy, and he fires the gun, and he misses. And he shoots through that picture that we noted at the beginning, uh, which led to this story. Soon after firing, uh, Silvio raises his hand to shoot back at the Count, and then the Countess jump, uh, rushes into the room and freaks out after you know, hearing a gunshot and then walking in and then seeing her husband having a gun pointed at him by another like rando. Y you'd see why someone might freak out in that situation. Um, sure. And the... Yeah, right, exactly. And the Count rushes to, to, to calm her and says, look, it's, it's just a joke. Look, look, you're so frightened. Don't worry about it. Go get some water. I'll introduce you, my friend. Uh, and the Countess, for <laughs> obvious reasons, uh, doubts him, says, really, is my, turns to the guy and says, my husband speaking the truth? Is this truth? Is it all a joke? 
And Silvio says, He is always joking, Countess. Once he gave me a slap in the face as a joke, and on another he sent a bullet through my cap as a joke, and just now when he fired at me and missed me, it was all a joke. And now, I feel inclined for a joke, and with those words he raises his pistol to take aim, and Masha cries out and throws herself uh, in front of the man, and the Count, still very apparently obsessed with the image, says, Masha, <laughs> Masha, get up, are you not ashamed? Uh, and then he keeps treating Sylvia like the guy's telling a joke. He says, you, sir, will you cease to make fun of a poor woman, a fire or not? And Sylvia says, I will not. I am satisfied. I have seen you. I have seen your confusion. I have seen your alarm. I forced you to fire at me, and that is sufficient. You will remember me, and I leave you to your conscience. And with that, he leaves and disappears. Um, and, and he is gone before anyone's able to recover themselves. And that's the end of the story. The count is silent. It's noted by the narrator at the very end. That's how he learned of the story whose beginning had once made such a deep impression on me. The hero of it, I never saw again. It is said that Silvio commanded a detachment of heterists during the revolt under Alexander Ypsilanti, and that he was killed at the Battle of Scolana. The shot. So, do you know why he dies this way? I don't know why he dies this way. Please elaborate. I have a tad bit of light to shed on this situation. Please. And that has to do with Pelkin's tales and Pushkin more, more generally, because we know that Pushkin's a pretty funny guy, all things considered. And he really builds his stories on satire. That's a pretty central element for a lot of what he's doing. And this might not be particularly satirical to a modern day audience uh, because, well, it's, it's old and not. Uh, the world in which we're living, but Silvio himself is um, essentially modeled on the Byronic hero. So, you know, this is important because he dies uh, at the end fighting in the uh, Greek independence war, and this is also where Byron dies. So this is how, wink, wink, hint, hint, that he's modeled like this. Not to mention the name Silvio is also not a Russian name. Right. It contains some some element of exoticism, which is uh, prevalent and important for uh, the romantic uh, hero, the romantic stereotype, the satire of it that Pushkin kind of sets up in this tale. Right. And so the it's in, in, in Sylvia being the Byronic hero, I'm then taking out of it. So this is I'm learning along with the audience. Um, <laughs> then uh, subverting what you would expect from Byronic hero in this circumstance. Because it seems like it's, it, in talking about it as him as a Byronic hero, you have more context for this than I do, in, in that it's supposed to be like a take or almost like a joke or he's trying to be humorous about it. Um, is, is it in Silvio not being the Byronic hero you expect? Because, I mean, it's, it's it, it, like talking about illusions. He's, he, the narrator does think about Silvio as like a hero from some, what is it, from some romantic novel or I don't remember what he says, but uh, Silvio... Um, far from being a hero, he seems consumed with a weird petty grievance of this guy who is more popular than him in his regiment that causes him to go on five years of, or not five years, but years of uh, penance waiting to kill this guy. Yeah, and I mean, it's it was over something that Silvio started to. I mean, it was really mostly his fault. Um, but I think that that's why, like, card games are really important for Silvio. And I mean... They were also just really popular at the time, especially if you were stationed in a in a village with nothing to do and no one to talk to. You would just play cards and gamble and drink because what else is there to do? But Pharaoh's a game that's mentioned in The Queen of Spades by Pushkin. Um, 
in, essentially it's just a card game of complete chance and luck and no skill being involved. Um, so while Silvio is unable to actually duel, he's more or less able to still engage in uh, a duel with fate itself. So this is how he occupies himself between, uh, be- between the duels. Between shooting at his, his wall, too. Well, yes, also shooting at his wall like a sad, sad 19th century boy does. <laughs> Speaking of duels, let's talk a little bit about duels. I know we covered them briefly when we were yes. uh, talking about Eugene Onegin, but I mean, this is, this is the impetus that got you into your PhD. Let's talk about duels. I do love duels. So do you know why he's unable to duel the new guy, the guy who's new in town? Um, I understand his own reasoning, but I'm imagining that there's a formal rule which I'm not aware of, which also allows him to not duel the new guy. The way that I understand it, and I, you know, I'm not a professional dueler, but this is how I understand it, is that <laughs> uh, you can't start a new duel until the last one is finished. And because he never took his shot, he never finished that duel. And so it's essentially open still, which is why he's able to come back and claim his shot uh, when he would like. But this is why he's unable to you know, duel anybody else in the meantime. This is why he has to play cards instead, which is way less fulfilling, way less fun versus dueling. Right. Uh, I suppose. I don't know. I've, I've never dueled. <laughs> um, I, we we got to get into it. We got we to gotta know. We got to understand. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We got to get into the character's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is for, for Sylvia why he's... He, he, he takes it, you know, very seriously and the rules very seriously. And so when he has to enter a duel uh, with somebody who's spitting cherry pits at him, uh, someone <laughs> who doesn't respect the ritual of dueling, it's frustrating. Right. Obviously. And so therefore he you, waits. Oh, yeah. He waits, Go on. Right. No, yeah. Obviously he's, he's waiting until his circumstances change and life means more to him, which is, you know, really sinister. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that's one of the things I, I noticed throughout the novel is that he's, I mean, in, initially introduced as like, oh, he's like this cool guy, romantic hero. Uh, as it continues, I mean, he's described as his, his, you know, countenance is described as diabolic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we, it's, I mean, we've got a narrative, which is interesting because we've got like, we've got the narrator talking about like this current story that we're actually reading, but then there's the background story of what happened between Silvio and the Count. And we're hearing about it from both of their perspectives. Um, although it's like a continuation of the same story over time. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning that this is only a 10-page story, 12-page story. It's not very long. And yes, it's very But brief. it's kind of, the narrative is somewhat complex. I mean, you have like a story within a story within a story. <laughs> yeah, right. And also, I mean, even, even a story within a story, like we're saying with Silvio being portrayed in like a, a sinister way um, as we get to know him, better but i guess sinister or not sinister it comes up it, it rears its head every once in a while sure yeah up until i mean the very end when they they continue to their final duel and the count misses and shoots the pist- pistol or shoots the the picture excuse me um and i think i forgot to note this actually when i was doing the the explanation but before silvio leaves after telling them he's joking um he he turns around and shoots one more time without barely looking and shoots another uh hole through the picture almost exactly where the count had you know, as like a, you know, I could have, I would barely even need to aim to hit you right where I want you. Right, right, right. I know. I love, I love this. Like, I don't know, kind of almost a cowardice, you know, right. you've been waiting for your moment for so long. Just do it. 
been waiting for five years and then when he finally gets his chance he doesn't do it right and, and this is not a far duel either like 12 paces is like nothing this is like that's like a <laughs> duel where someone's meant to die it's interesting that he I mean, at the very end he's like oh yeah i'm just joking and then says look i i don't actually need to kill you i get to you i'll you'll remember me i know i'll be sitting here and uh -huh, bro it was just a prank it was just a fun prank, which again, getting back to him being sinister I and mean, getting the idea of the Byronic hero, and this Byronic hero is actually, in a lot of ways, quite sinister. Um, you know, he's out here not. He doesn't just want to duel. He wants to. Do, he wants to. This person to. Uh, if he doesn't fear death, what's the point of dueling? He should fear me. He should feel death when I shoot at him. And if I can't make him fear death, then I will make him remember me. Make him remember that I was his death. I could have been his death. That's super villain shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's like, yeah, a guy's got a complex. Yeah, which maybe, I don't know, that's, that's, that's the joke here. This is like a little funny tale, but the Byronic hero who's not, well, who is, I guess, is and is, has some extra details, some extra character features. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, you know, I, I do, I don't know, this isn't super relevant to uh, anything specific about the story, but every time I, I read Pushkin, and, you know, granted, some of this is, a feature of translation or a result of translation, but I'm always struck by how just effortlessly funny Pushkin is. And I'm sure I'm missing a lot of the humor, but just the, a lot of the you know jabs he throws or one-offs or asides are all, like in The Captain's Daughter, um, anything else we read by Pushkin. I don't think we've done that much else on the podcast, but just in general, whenever you read Pushkin, he's just, he's funny. He's a funny writer. I, I think he really is. I think it, people, I don't think that many people read him, to be honest. It's, mm -hmm. it's part of the problem. Like everyone knows he's there, but people don't really read him. Mostly because people don't really read poetry uh, as much as they did, and that's a shame for its own reasons. Uh, right. But then nobody ever pays attention to like his short fiction, which is absolutely hilarious. I think deserves more attention, is all I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I, it's just I, I mean it's funny and like his aside, like going back to his little aside, which is right after Sylvia refuses to duel the drunk officer and uh, the narrator notes of course this isn't actually pushkin but the, the narrator notes want of courage is the last thing to be pardoned by young men you usually look upon bravery as the chief of all human virtues and the excuse for every possible fault yeah um just that that um <laughs> uh analysis is just uh, simultaneously funny and an interesting um i, I mean even tied to the story itself i mean bravery excusing a lot of other shortcomings or sylvia's apparent bravery and waiting to get up in front of those in front of the gun for so many times being one of the main duelers in his own unit perhaps overlooking a lot of other shortcomings i'll say about silvio and his tendencies well it kind of also it's not so much a digression but it builds on sort of what we saw in eugene onegin where the world is built by digression and the world here isn't necessarily built on that as a device but it is used as a device to kind of give that spice of life, if you will, uh, to the action that's going on. The really acute observations of individuals and in different societal features and the duel in general, which was um, kind of hush-hush because it wasn't legal to be dueling. It, it was for some period of time, or it wasn't ever legal maybe, um, but it was encouraged at some point. Um, not so much at other points. No one was really cracking down on duels, let's say. Right, yeah. This was how you settle disputes as a nobleman, which 
you know, hey, you got to do it. You just, if, yeah, if someone lays down that insult, what else can you do besides uh, (laughs) shoot them? What else can you do? (laughs) What other outcomes could there possibly be? Well, honestly, at this point in the 19th century in Russia, there really was no other option. Yeah. You would be seen as such a coward if you didn't duel, which is why everybody loses respect for Silvio when he doesn't duel this guy. Yeah. You got anything else in the shop? No, that's about all I had. It's a short one, but it's fun. It's a short one. It's fun. I've just it's it's a it's a funny tale. A little bit of context. Um, Matt, before we we wrap up, I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. I mean, we forgot to answer this one last time, and it doesn't entirely apply to you. But on a scale of one to Yeltsin, where are mm-hmm. you? Uh, drinking a non-alcoholic beer that mm-hmm. is certified yes. contains less than zero point five percent alcohol. Right. I am hovering at around a zero. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. But intellectual capacity wise, a hundred. So that's good. Is a hundred intellectual drunkenness or No, my, my capacity for intellectual reasoning is still okay. solid because I'm at a zero. Oh. Yes. You got it. It's like when I took that IQ test and I scored a perfect one hundred. Yes. <laughs> yes, yeah. it's exactly like that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I am about, uh, this is more of a sipping mezcal than not a shooting sure. one, so I'm on maybe a three. I had to do a lot of articulation for the actual storytelling, so fairly low, but in a, in a good place to be having fun talking about the shot. You know, don't mix alcohol and firearms, so yeah, yeah. only just a little bit of drinking for this episode. <laughs> That's good, though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, Matt, I also have to ask you, and the people have been waiting for this one, what are we going to be, well, not really reading next episode, what are we doing next episode? Next episode, which will probably come out the last Friday of November, so probably skip uh, next week and come out on the 25th, if I had to guess, just based on how our timing is lining up for this. We'll finally be able to do our interview with Robert Chandler, which we have been hoping to do, but I've been very bad at scheduling because I've been busy. Lots been going on. A lot has been going on, but hopefully we'll be able to nail this down and get out a good interview. We have, I mean, I at least already have stuff prepped for it. Uh, I know. I just need to be better at scheduling. Yeah, no, we're ready. Uh, I've, I've got questions. I've been reading The People Immortal, Grossman's mm-hmm. uh, first novel about World War II, and I have a lot of questions for Chandler as I go through this, since The People Immortal was actually just published this year, mm-hmm. so a lot of fairly recent things that I'm going to be probing him about. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be a terribly long interview, but I think it'll be a good one. It'll be, it'll be one I'm really looking forward to. I'm very excited yeah, for it. Me too. Before we let you go, we want to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons. We've got Jeff, Madeline, Ann, Janice, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Jack, Paige, Jesse, Lou, Irini, Brandon, Allison, Cole, Elise, Mysterious, Donor Dude, Joanne, Yitza, Alex, Stephanie, Julie, Eli, Caitlin, Brett, Isaac, Austin, Zachary, Pack, Rob, Maya, Amanda, Blake, Shannon, and Jay, Elizabeth, and Jacob. Podcasting isn't free, and grad school continues to not pay me very well, so if you're interested in joining with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Tipsy... On Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast, on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, 
tipsytolstoy.com. You'll hear from us again soon.